We have an announcement that we get to make this morning. It's one of those announcements that uh, probably is just a little bit more difficult because it has to do with our own humanity. And in the spirit of keeping everything open and honest when it comes to money, because we love to talk about money, don't we? Um, I'm gonna invite my good friend Lisa McGinnis to come on up. And she will be on mic number four. And she has a little update that she would like to share with you. I would ask that you would extend Lisa right now an extra measure of grace. Can you do that with me? Just a little extra measure of grace. And uh, do you feel that? I do. It's coming. All right. Take it, girl. Hello. Uh, As he said, I'm Lisa McGinnis, and um, I am on the board that supports the Safe House in uh, Myanmar. And uh, I wanted to, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we were able to share uh, the exciting events and experience we had there. Uh, Today, I have to share something else that is a little bit more unfortunate. Um, So uh, here we go. Uh, Because of a (laughs) complex series of events, about two months of the support that we usually uh, give to the safe house has ended up in an inaccessible account. Um, It was one of those things where it was like a perfect storm of what could go wrong, did go wrong. Um, I want to emphasize that the money was not stolen. Several people have been concerned that that was the case, but it is not the case. It's just a little bit tricky to get money into a third world country and um, We have always had to use non-conventional, but I want to assure you, completely legal uh, means of getting the money there. And uh, in this case, we just hit a snafu uh, and the money did not get where we needed to get it. Um, But I want to let you know um, that although this money has been lost, uh, we have addressed the issue. Uh, We had eight good years of monthly getting the money to our partners uh, in Myanmar without event. We hit a big event this time, but we have new, exciting, thorough systems in place uh, so that as we move forward, uh, we will not have any more unfortunate events, as I like to think of it. Um, But I just wanted to make sure that we brought this before you because we want to assure you that we are doing everything we can to be good stewards of your money. Uh, These are all generous offerings and gifts uh, that have come from you, and so we want to be completely transparent um, and just uh, all be together as we move forward to uh, be a part of the solution. There, how does that feel? It feels really good. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. Uh, This is not a ploy to get more out of you. It's simply where it falls in our gathering. Our giving of our tithes and offerings is actually what I refer to as gifts of joy. These are not have-tos. These are I get to give. That we've been given such a gracious gift from God our Father. Everything we've been given belongs to Him anyway. So this is simply our expression back to just say thank you for the gift. So we are grateful for the gift that God has extended to us. Bless these tithes, these offerings. Use them for your purposes, Jesus, in the world and be glorified in it. Thank you. So, uh, with that news, I I would like to um, begin with this. We have now entered into week one of Advent, or sorry, of Lent, of Lent. We are in Lent. We began our journey of Lent on Wednesday with an Ash Wednesday gathering. 
was a beautiful gathering, a beautiful expression of entering into a communal practice of learning how to go the way of the cross. As we seek to address things in our lives that we need to lay down and invite the Spirit to invite us to take up certain things. And one of the things that I think Jesus calls us to take up is the cross. All that that means, the cost of that. So we, um, through discernment and through being led by the Spirit, which we believe is our core, core value number one, if you're not aware, at Hillside Covenant Church is we wanna be a community that is led by the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that every time we get together, we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. So we create time and space to listen to the Holy Spirit together, to practice listening to the Holy Spirit. So your counsel and your staff, when we gather together, we create practices centered around listening to the Holy Spirit. So last time we gathered, we talked about the Safe House donation, the Safe House Fund, and how do we then um, deal with the loss of $19,000, a large sum of money. And we're holding all of that going, well, what do we do with this as a leadership team? Well, we decided that we didn't want to keep it private. We wanted to bring you all in on it, understanding some of the confusion around it and questions that will arise. And we're happy to field those questions and concerns. You can always talk to any one of us on our leadership team and our council and the search team. We'd love to talk to you as well. So if you uh, want to know more information about some of the hows and what happened, please feel free to sit down and chat with us. But because we are now experiencing this, we thought, well, how do we then respond to that? Do we withhold or does Jesus call us to step into the ambiguity of generous giving? And I think one of the things that Jesus invites us into is to give not just out of the places where we call it the 10% tithe rule. I think Jesus calls us to give over and beyond into places where when we give generously, we find that our choices are now limited. So I ask myself the question, am I giving to the point where my choices are limited? Or am I only giving enough to where I can still do the things that I want to do, but this is the, the amount that I've determined? And I think the kind of giving that Jesus calls us into is what we would call generous giving, over and beyond, extending. And I'm gonna ask all of us to enter into this practice together through Lent we're gonna do everything that we can as a community to raise $19,000 to make that right. Now, we as a staff have been praying about it and your staff um, has agreed to step into this practice. We as a staff have raised $3,600. So we did not want to ask you to step into something unless we were willing to step into it first. So we as your pastors, as your leaders, which we are grateful that you've entrusted us into our care, have upon ourselves raised $3,600 to help bring that number down. We're now down to 15.4. So we've got 15.4 to cover. I think we can cover that through Lent. So what we're asking you to do is through Lent is to ask yourself the question, where, where is God inviting us as a family, as individuals to give more and to give generously? And it may be that you sit down with your family, with your children, and say, hey, instead of on Friday nights, we have this set time where we go and have dinner together, you don't have dinner together. Instead, you take that money and you set it aside towards the safe house donation. Or it might be a, an area of life where you say, for the next 40 days, we're not going to do this as a practice. We're going to choose to step in and give the money that we would ordinarily give, and we're going to put it into the safe house offering. So on your Church Center app, if you go into the giving section, you'll notice that when you type in the amount that you want to give, there'll be a, a section that says uh, Lenten Safe House Offering, Donation. 
offering. Jariah, help me out. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Lenten safe house offering. And we believe that this will be a practice that we're being invited into by the Spirit. So we'd love for you to step into that, pray about that, see where God leads you. Also, if you are interested during our season of Lent to participate in a Bible study simply to help you center yourselves on what it means to be a generous people, these booklets will be provided for you on the back table. These are uh, like just Bible studies to take you through the next 40 days that you can do on your own or with your families, with your children. Um, these are uh, centered around adult Bible studies, but if you wanna do things with your kids, I think you can orchestrate that and have discussions around the table when you sit down and have a meal together. What does it mean for our kids to learn how to practice generosity? And what a great opportunity for us as parents, as families, to then teach our kids that this is what generosity looks like. Because Jesus calls us to set certain things down so that we can take up the joy of giving generously. So if you want to participate in that, that will be provided for you on the back table. Over the next 40 days and through these Sundays of Lent, we are going to be stepping deeply into the life of Jesus Christ. And as we step deeply into the life of Jesus Christ, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that as we learn about how Jesus interacts with people and how he speaks to people, with people, around people, that it will become like a spiritual solvent that will pour over our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, and begin to dissolve political and cultural assumptions that all of us have. As we lean in deeper into the way of Jesus, my hope and prayer is that we will be challenged, we will be uncomfortable, we will um, be invited to change certain patterns and habits in life that may make us uncomfortable. But I would say if we are truly, truly following in the way of Jesus, if there's no uncomfort in life, then I'm beginning to question what's really going on. So we're going to lean into that. We're going to talk about good news this morning. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God next week. Week three, you might want to skip because we're talking about forgiveness. I understand forgiveness is a great concept. We like it, but we don't want to practice it. So we're going to talk about practicing forgiveness found in Jesus' kingdom manifesto between Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. Then we're going to talk about the question, who is my neighbor, around the story of the Good Samaritan. Is this a story about how we're supposed to just do good for people in need, or is this a story about racism and hatred? Hmm, we'll have to lean into that and allow the text to address us. We will then look at who are the kinds of people that Jesus invited to his table, and do our tables reflect Jesus' table, or are our tables uh, in, in a, like an exude, what am I looking for, the word, do our tables prohibit people of need coming and participating with generosity? So we're going to take a hard look at that. This morning, we begin in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1. We're going to unpack it. And then we're going to look at verse 15 in the same gospel. So if you want to have the text open, if you want your Bible apps open, you can have those before you. But I want to begin by looking at Mark Chapter 1, verse 1, and I simply want to read this to you, and 
ask you to listen very carefully. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We'll stop there. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, it has this language of Genesis where we go back into the beginning of the creation story. In the beginning, God created, and God was about to do something new. And in in Mark's narrative, he refers to it as the beginning of Jesus Christ, almost like with this subtle hint, a wink back to the beginning, that God's about to do something new, something significant is about to happen in history. So the beginning of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then later on, just a few verses down, in verse 14, the second half of 14 and 15, it says that Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So now it's not just good news, it's the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Two more times that term good news is used. So what is this good news that we read about in the New Testament? How does it pertain to us? Is it good news? Is it good for everyone? Or is it just good for some of us? And when we truly hear the good news, how how are we going to react to it? How are we going to respond to it? And we're going to explore that. Like, how do we respond to the good news that Jesus talks about here in Mark's gospel? Now, I would refer to verse 15 as Jesus' inaugural speech. And when a leader gets up to make their inaugural speech, you pay careful attention because they're letting you know, "This this is everything that I'm about. These are my intentions. And Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as good news. Now, if we, t- if we take this back a little bit and we put it in its proper context of where Jesus was saying this uh, very statement in this time in history, what was going on around Jesus and the people of God? Now, Roman emperors used this term good news as well. And the only time they would use this term good news is when the news pertained to everyone. It had to be a public proclamation that was affecting the whole community of people. So this was not just for a select few. If you said it was good news, it was good for everyone. If it wasn't good for everybody, then it wasn't good news. It's just news, which we hear a lot of, just news. But if it's good news, then it's for everyone. Now, I would say it depends on what side of influence and privilege you find yourself on, if it's good news or not. So God's people were under the boot of oppression by the Roman Empire at this time in their history. So if you're on the side of the oppressor and you're experiencing peace and prosperity and you find yourselves in position of privilege, is Jesus' message good news? And if you find yourself on the other side of the boot of oppression, is Jesus' message good news? To answer that question, I think you have to look deep into the very life and the fabric of Jesus and his teaching. Again, if it doesn't pertain to everyone, then it's not good news. Now, Roman citizens were very familiar with the term good news. In fact, when they heard the term good news, they would assume that something of significance happened or is about to happen, so everybody needs to come together and pay attention to this declaration of good news. So for example, when Rome would go into battle, this military force, this probably the greatest military superpower that the world had seen up to this point, they would just go in and they would crush 
nations. They would crush people groups. They were just this powerful expression of what power looks like. And when they would go and win a battle, then a declaration would be made. A messenger would come into the public square, like a Madison Square Garden type environment where they would come in and they would make this public proclamation to the whole community. Rome has won this battle. And I'll give you an example of something that was actually said in history around good news. Caesar Augustus, who ruled from 27 BC to AD 14, articulated his good news like this. Listen very carefully. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, commander of land and sea, water and earth, the benefactor, the reason behind your prosperity, your peace, your position of privilege, and savior of the whole world has brought you peace. Does that sound familiar to you? How? Through coercive military force, the most powerful military force the world had ever seen would come into your region and destroy you. And if you pledged your allegiance and you went the way and the will of Caesar, all would go well for you and your family. If you chose to align yourself under the authority and power of Caesar, all would go well for you and your family. So as citizens of Rome, you were asked to pledge your allegiance to the way of Caesar, the way of Rome. And above all, seek to do his will and implement his desire and dream in the world. Now, step back for a moment and think about Jesus stepping into this time in history when there was already a kingdom established and making a statement like this. That is inflammatory language, my friends. To make a statement like that and to say, the kingdom of God is now here. My friends, if you say that in the middle of an empire, things are not gonna go well for you and your movement. In fact, what could possibly happen is eventually you will die. So if you choose to stand and make a statement like that, understanding the weight and the brevity of that, and understanding that this is news for everyone, as Jesus makes this statement, you step back and you realize, my goodness, Jesus was even more radical than I had thought he was. To make such a statement, an inflammatory statement like this. Again, how we would hear this good news has a lot to say with where we find ourselves in the story. What side of the boot do you find yourself on? And how would you hear this news of Jesus. If you were a Roman citizen and all was going well for you and your family and you were experiencing prosperity and peace, this would have been heard as a subversive message and it might create problems for the system that we find ourselves living in. Why, Jesus? Why another kingdom? Why would you introduce another kingdom into this kingdom that's already working? So I stepped back this week and I asked myself the question, well, if Jesus came into the world today and he somehow landed in the Bay Area of California, where would he make his announcement? Yeah, I don't think Walnut Creek, but he might make it in San Francisco. I think it might find itself in our papers. It would find itself in certain news networks, possibly CNN and maybe Fox News even. Not sure. But where would his message be? And what would it sound like? Well, 
I'm going to throw out a guess of what I think it could be. Maybe his announcement was actually centered in a series of questions. Here it is. What is the path to peace? How are we responding to our neighbors in need? How are we treating children, the poor, immigrants, minorities? Or how about our enemies and the enemies of our nation? Are we throwing good parties to bring people together, including our poor neighbors? What is the point of entertainment? What values are we strengthening in sports? And how are those values shaping and forming our children? Are we serving the wrong master, money, rather than God? Did my mic go out? Am I good? All right. Does it bother you that God loves the enemies of our nation? The empire of God is now here. Repent and believe. Let's return back to God's design for how things really should be. Let's return back to where we live in a world where justice is done for the oppressed and where love wins, where peace comes through nonviolence, and we are always working towards reconciliation with all people. And to realize that the only dream we serve is God's dream. Friends, the kingdom of God is now here. It's good news, but is it good news for everyone? Secondly, this was made by a Jewish man. That's loaded for a Jew to make this comment. Since 586 BC, Jews have been ruled over by a long series of superpower after superpower. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And as you can imagine, the Jewish people had very strong feelings about their enemies and being dominated over and over again by these evil pagan nations. They wanted to be free. They wanted to own their own property, farm their own land, raise their own families, serve their own God, and, and love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. So imagine this with me if you can. You're part of a God-fearing nation. You consider yourself to be on God's side. You worship one true God. You're obedient to this one true God. And you keep saying over and over again that this God is above all other gods. And yet you find yourself being ruled and dominated by pagan nations who mocked your practices, who practiced other things that you considered evil. And then to top it off, the emperors themselves declared and said that they are God. And your holy book has a lot to say about this kind of blasphemy statement. To say that, then we can't be part of a government that is divinizing themselves. We have to do something about it. Again, depending on what side of the boot of oppression you find yourselves on, you're going to read and hear this good news differently, even for us. Lean into that. As a result of being oppressed over and over again, what happened as a result of that, there were four different sects of Judaism in their religious faith that rose up in the system. Now, what happens is that these four different sects of Judaism had different viewpoints about government, politics, and following God and Torah, which are the five, first five books of the Old Testament. And these four groups are all found in the gospel narrative, you can find these groups in the narratives. What I'm asking us to do this morning is, do you find yourself 
among one of these four groups? Do you see yourself fitting in one of these categories? This is where we find Jesus in the story. Group number one, the zealots. Are you a zealot? Now, Simon was one of Jesus' disciples, and Simon was referred to as Simon the Zealot, so I think it's safe to assume that he was a zealot. That was not his last name. That's where he was affiliated with. Jesus invites Simon to become one of his disciples and follow in his way. Zealots believed that the Jews were being too passive, and because they were passive, they were being oppressed, and they lacked courage. So what they sought to do was gather a group of people together and let's go in with swords and slingshots and overpower Rome. Let's take it back. Because if we look back in history in the Old Testament, God uh, had a way of raising up God's people and they would go in and they would defeat evil nations. So surely God is on our side. God has to empower us to go and defeat this evil pagan nation. What could possibly go wrong? So that's a zealot. Group number two, the Herodians. The Herodians were supporters of the puppet master Herod, and they joined forces with a religious party called the Sadducees. The Herodians and the Sadducees thought that those zealots have it all wrong. Does any of this sound familiar? They've got it wrong. That that group of people have it wrong. We've got it right. And the Herodians thought, you've you've got to be practical when it comes to a political system, and you have to become buddy-buddy with the politic game. And so they decided to group with the Sadducees and like, let's not try to overpower Rome because they're going to crush us. Why would you want things to go worse for your family? Just get in and play the political game. Yes, they're morally bankrupt, but let's not make it harder for people. Both groups thought the other ones were unenlightened. Who's wrong? Who's out? Who's getting it right? What side is God on? Group number three, the Essenes. Now, some scholars believed that the Essenes, uh, John the Baptist was an Essene. And the Essenes believed that culture itself uh, was impure and evil. And as a God-fearing follower, you had to avoid culture. Stay away from culture because culture's bad. So they would remove themselves from culture and they would go live out in the desert And they would fast, and they would pray, and they would beat their bodies into submission. They would lay out in the dirt and just ask for God's mercy and cleanse us, purify us. We have to stay away from culture because culture is dangerous, and we've got to keep ourselves away from the evil of culture. Now, depending on how you read the scriptures, you can see how these three groups arrived at their conclusions, can't you? Yeah, this makes sense to me based on what I read in the story. So the Essenes said, stay away from culture. The Zealots and the Herodians were sellouts, and the Herodians thought the Essenes were just running away. Like, well, you guys can just run away. Each group had it wrong according to the other. Does any of that sound familiar? Group number four, the Pharisees. All oh, the Pharisees get such a bad rap, don't they? The Pharisees were this group of people that believed that you wanted to obey the Torah obey everything in the Torah, become more pure, um, go after purity, align your body according to the rules and regulations that God has laid out for us. So purity was a big deal for the Pharisees. They followed everything down to every jot 
and tittle. And by doing so, God would then send us a deliverer. So if we're pure enough and we keep away from sin and we keep sin out of the community to the best of our ability, then what's going to happen? God will send us his Messiah and the Messiah will come and save us. Now imagine, do you find yourself in any one of those groups? If we're honest, we might say, yeah, there's, there's to a degree, I find myself in all four of them actually. Jesus comes into history at this point, four different sects of Judaism, makes this declaration of the kingdom of God is now here, declaring good news. And so all four of these groups had to have heard about this declaration because it's good news, and good news isn't just for a few people, it's for everybody, so they had to have heard the announcements. So the Zealots and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Pharisees had to get together in their groups, right? Because that's what you do. You get together with your groups and you decide, are we gonna follow this uh, Messiah, this God-chosen person? So what if you're a Pharisee? Purity, such a good thing. Keep sin out of the camp, yes, such a good thing. Finally, our obedience has paid off and God's gonna show up because we thought God left, but clearly our obedience did it and brought him back. We did enough. And so they get together and they think, oh, it's Friday night. I hear that Jesus is at a wedding. We should go to that and connect with Jesus and see what he's up to. And maybe we could all get together and we can start to rejoice that God has sent us a deliverer. So as they're walking up to this party, imagine these people, devout, pure, good, keep sin away all these rules and regulations and they see this party and the light of the party and they hear music and they hear dancing and laughter and they finally find Jesus and what is he doing? He's turning water into wine. My goodness. And people are getting, they're just partying and Jesus is right there in the mix of all of them. And then they go to other parties and they see Jesus at these parties too and there's prostitutes and there's drunkards Politicians are there. Wow. Politicians and also Samaritans. Samaritans, according to Jewish law, they were even considered human. We'll get to that later. But oh, Jesus is hanging out with all of these impure people. Clearly, he's not the chosen one. The Pharisees walk away disappointed, thinking, okay, he's not like us. Hmm. then he's got to be a zealot, right? He's got to be a zealot. He's not a Pharisee. Zealots get together, they get their swords and their slingshots, and they hear that Jesus is heading up on a hillside. Hmm. Reference to us, a hillside. And he's about ready to make his kingdom manifesto, public. And they're going and they're listening and they're ready. They're ready to rock, like, let's do this. Let's go, let's go slit some Romans' throats. You've got all these people here. How are we going to do this? And Jesus begins to talk about his way, his kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And he stands there and he begins teaching and he starts saying things like this. Do you want to know the way to peace? <laughs> do you want to know who will be blessed in this kingdom? Yeah, tell us. The poor, the meek, the persecuted, those who make peace with great love, those who love their enemies, and those who practice radical forgiveness. The zealots walk away disappointed with Jesus. Again, the statement rings into the air. He's not like us. He's nothing like us. Making a declaration of good news in a public square, he can't be a Herodian, right? 
because that's inflammatory language. And he can't be in a scene. He's at parties, for God's sake. He's right in the middle of culture. Jesus is an enigma. And you can't, like, place him in any one of the categories that we try to place him. Surely Jesus has to be on our side, right? Surely he has to line up with what we see as reality. One of the questions that I think Jesus asks of all of us that we have to ask of ourselves is what makes you think the world is the way you see it? Live with that question. What, what makes us think the world is the way we see it? Our allegiance as Jesus followers is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to Jesus. That is where our hearts are rooted. We do not bow down to a political party. We bow down to the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And if you choose to be part of this kingdom and begin walking in a whole new way of life, listen to me, my friends, revenge will not be part of our narrative. In fact, if someone slaps you on the cheek, Jesus says, turn the other cheek in a nonviolent counter move. We'll talk about that later. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, you will choose to go another mile, and this will be an expression of your own benevolent free will. If you choose the third way, which I believe is the Jesus way, that is the one that is always above submission or active retaliation. If you choose to enter into this Lenten journey, moving towards the cross and step into the kingdom of God, you will not ever sit back and reject and judge the notorious sinner. You will not do it. You will interact with them gently and kindly. You will be open, you will listen, you will give grace where grace is most needed. You will refuse to judge people that are different than you. You will refuse it. And you might even invite them to your parties. You might. And if someone gossips to you, you will stop it in the moment and say, we don't do that here. Go talk to the person. This also applies to email, my friends. When you gossip through email, it still hurts all of us. Even though one person may be reading it, I'm telling you what, it affects the whole thing. Remember in Ephesians, where Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Just get it out. It doesn't lead us anywhere good. And as a Jesus follower, we always hold on to the hope that healing is always a possibility. Always. That reconciliation is always a possibility. So we don't stop seeking reconciliation. We'll never stop. Because we believe that it's always a possibility and we won't be blindly patriotic and compliant like the Herodians and the Sadducees. Instead, we will confront injustice. We will move towards it, even at the risk of losing our own comfort and security. We won't get all comfy cozy with the status quo. And we will lean into the question, what makes us think the world is the way we see it? We will defeat hatred with forgiveness. We will not perpetuate hate with more hate and we will win the sinner's heart with great love. My question for us through this Lenten journey is do you, friends, want to participate in the kingdom of God? 
And does this sound like good news to you? (laughs) Will you have the courage to invite others to your party? Giving them the seat of honor and giving them the best food and the best wine you've got. If we do this, we will begin to be light in the world. We've decided that that is who we are, who we are becoming. We want to be light in the world. If we participate in the kingdom of God now, we will be light in the world. And if we choose to enter into the kingdom of God through practice, we've decided based on our own core values, core value number one is that we are led by the Spirit. That means that every time we get together, we open ourselves up to the possibility that maybe the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Maybe. Maybe the Holy Spirit will lead us and direct us even when we make mistakes and we fumble up money. Even then, the Holy Spirit might lead us and not hold that over us, but might even call us into deeper sense of what it means to be a generous community. So we will be led by the Spirit. And then our second core value is this, that we will be in the Word. And I don't just mean read the Bible. I think the Bible says that Jesus is the Word. He is the living Word in John 1, that living Logos, and that we get to be in Jesus together as we read and interact with the Scriptures because the Scriptures shape and form who we are. We don't get to decide what it is. We're being shaped by Scripture, and we're asking Scripture to ask us the question, what makes us think the world is the way we see it? Change us. How do we do this? We do this by growing in community. Core value number three, we want to grow in community. That means that we want to be in community with one another. We want to be able to handle things together. We want to learn how to forgive one another. We want to practice the way of Jesus together because we want to be light in the world. We've chosen to be in community. And above all, core value number four is that we have chosen to honor God through service. We will be a people who foot wash, who lay down, who give wholeheartedly, who practice generosity because we want to be a people that honor God through service. And then by doing so, by doing all these things and living into this, by being light in the world, the last core value is is that the result will be we'll transform the world around us. Led by the Spirit, in the Word, grow in community, honor God through service, transform our world. I'm going to like, I'm going to feed you this as long as I'm here because I believe it and I think it's good and I think it's good news for everyone. So that's what we get to do, friends. Who's in? Okay. 